Hello and welcome to the MedEd Podcast, a free audio lecture series that reviews high-yield medical topics frequently seen on the boards and throughout your career in medicine. Your success is our mission. Hello, my name is Will, and I am a third-year medical student at the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine. Today, we're going to be talking about abdominal pain. Abdominal pain is an extremely common complaint that every physician will encounter in their training or in their practice. Abdominal pain is of particular importance for any medical student considering primary care, inpatient care, or general surgery. What I am going to teach you is a systematic approach to abdominal pain that you can use as a template and modify as it suits you for the type of rotation or practice that you will eventually go into. When it comes to clinical reasoning, systematic evaluation of a patient is absolutely crucial to not missing the diagnosis. The components to arriving at a diagnosis involve collecting a thorough history, performing a focused physical, collecting studies such as labs and images, and sometimes the use of therapeutics, whether successful or unsuccessful, can yield important diagnostic information. Of course, before you do any of these things, you need to make sure that your patient is going to be stable and capable of enduring all of your interviewing and testing. I'm going to omit that from the rest of the discussion today, but know that the immediate stability is going to take precedence over much of what we are going to discuss today. So let's answer the question of how to approach abdominal pain. Some of the first bits of information that I would like to know are demographic or identifying information. Why would that be important? There are many gynecological etiologies to abdominal pain that simply won't exist in a person without a uterus or ovaries, and the same can be said for a person without testes. Age is an important factor because simply being older is going to raise things like cancer on my differential, and lower things like appendicitis or newly diagnosed inflammatory bowel disease, because these tend to be disproportionately diagnosed in the young. Furthermore, a young child will often have me thinking of more psychiatric, aka functional, aka non-organic causes of abdominal pain. Alright, so you ask the patient an open-ended question about what is going on, and they tell you a little bit about their abdominal pain. What are some direct questions we can ask that will help illuminate this problem a little further? So we can ask how long the pain has been there and its temporal nature where it is located, and where it radiates if it does, what the pain feels like, if the pain is aggravated or alleviated by anything, and if there are any associated symptoms. Let's discuss why each of these questions would be important in abdominal pain. First, why is it important to ask about the temporal nature of the abdominal pain, including questions like the initial onset of pain, the timing of the pain, etc.? The very first big split in your abdominal pain differential is the difference between acute and chronic abdominal pain. Chronic abdominal pain is a difficult diagnosis and is likely going to warrant a more in-depth investigation. Acute abdominal pain is often readily apparent on history and physical and when the proper diagnostic tests have been chosen. Furthermore, if the pain is recurrent or intermittent or colicky, this is more suggestive of an obstructive pattern, such as in biliary colic or renal colic or bowel obstruction, as well as with ulcers that are exacerbated by eating when located in the stomach or relieved by eating when located in the duodenum. Abdominal pain that occurs primarily at night might be due to the patient lying down, as is the case with GERD, or due to a prolonged period of fasting, as is the case with duodenal ulcers. 
So then why is location important? Abdominal pain, particularly acute abdominal pain, lends itself well to an anatomical approach. By that I mean that pain isolated to a certain area of the abdomen is likely a pathology common to that particular organ. So my favorite way to divide the abdomen is actually not into four quadrants as is common, but into six areas. I essentially divide the abdomen first into top and bottom. I further subdivide each of those divisions into essentially left, middle, and right. So I have left upper quadrant, right upper quadrant, left lower quadrant, right lower quadrant, upper middle or epigastric, which is right below the xiphoid process of the sternum and extends down to above the umbilicus, and lower middle, or periumbilical and suprapubic, and like it sounds, is around the umbilicus and extends down to the suprapubic region. Let's come back to this in a second after we discuss the other questions that you're going to ask about abdominal pain. So what are you going to learn by asking about aggravating or alleviating factors? There is a lot you can learn. I'll give you some examples. Peptic ulcers classically get better or worse with eating. Gastric ulcers tend to get worse with eating, and duodenal ulcers tend to get better with eating. Bowel obstructions will get worse with food or water. Chronic mesenteric ischemia is chronic pain that worsens with consumption of food. Neuropathic pain is often positional, and muscular pain is often associated with some movement like sitting up or standing erect. And extra-abdominal causes of pain, such as pleuritis, can feel as though they are in the upper portion of the abdomen, and pleuritis is classically associated with deep breathing and positional pain. Now, why is it important to ask about the characteristics of the pain? While I tend to find this question less helpful than the other ones, there are some clues you can get from the description of the pain and its severity. Dull pain is nonspecific, but might suggest bladder distension. Gastroenteritis or bowel distension pains can be described as shifting or crampy, and the pain of distended bowels is often colicky in nature. Nephrolithiasis is a very severe colicky pain. Crampy, diffuse pain might suggest chronic mesenteric ischemia. Exceptionally severe pain is often associated with peritonitis and acute mesenteric ischemia, and gnawing or burning is frequently used in the description of peptic ulcer disease. Finally, what associated symptoms might you see with abdominal pain, and how might it help you with your differential? You might see nausea or vomiting, which frankly isn't very specific for any one abdominal condition, but might make you think more about an infectious or inflammatory process. Associated diarrhea without blood is suggestive of an inflammatory process, especially due to infectious etiologies. And a more chronic course suggests a malabsorptive or obstructive disorder, such as lactose intolerance, celiac disease, chronic constipation, or colorectal cancer. The patient might have blood in their vomit, which would make me suspect peptic ulcer disease or a Mallory Weiss tear. The patient might have melana, which again suggests an upper GI bleed. Bright red blood per rectum, or hematochesia, is suggestive of a lower GI bleed which coupled with abdominal pain suggests perhaps a diverticulitis, inflammatory bowel disease, colorectal cancer, or even Meckel's or intussusception, especially in your pediatric populations. Infarcted bowel could also lead to blood per rectum. Weight loss makes me think about an obstructive process or a chronic inflammatory process, such as cancer. Fever makes me think about a systemic inflammatory process. We'll talk about many of these symptoms again on their own in other episodes, but for today... 
Abdominal pain is the chief complaint. After you've collected a good HPI, you're going to review the history. What are you looking for in this patient's history? In short, we're looking for risk factors. Let's go through it systematically. So what might you find in the past medical history of this patient? So this patient might have a history of diabetes, which would make me think that possibly this patient could be in diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. Or perhaps they might have an infection, since diabetes increases the risk of infection. Chronic alcoholism makes me think about pancreatitis and gastritis. And binge-style drinking might increase vomiting, which will make me think of a Mallory Weiss tear. What might we see in this patient's past surgical history? So any abdominal surgeries would make me think of possible adhesions, which can cause bowel obstructions and subsequent abdominal pain. What could we see in this patient's social history? So we might see smoking, and smoking increases the risk of cancer and a vascular disease, which could lead to chronic mesenteric ischemia. Uh, unsafe sexual practices also increase the risk of sexually transmitted infections, which can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease or other inflammatory processes that can refer to the abdomen. Travel history might suggest various infectious etiologies. So what can we learn from the family history? A family history of cancer with or without a history of smoking will make me think more about cancer on my differential. Obviously, any other GI conditions that run in the family will also enter my differential. So what can we glean from a good obstetric and gynecological history? So we know that increased estrogen increases the likelihood of gallstone formation, which can lead to biliary obstruction and pain. And there's the mnemonic, the four Fs, so female, fat, 40, and fertile, and these are your patients that often present with a history of biliary colic, and it often develops into an acute cholecystitis. You'll also want to know about the menstrual history of your patients and the temporal relationship of the abdominal pain to menstruation. You also want to know about medications. So what do we want to know about medications? So we want to know if they have chronic pain, which would suggest chronic NSAID use. Um, that makes me think about ulcers. Um, recent antibiotic use also makes me think about C. diff. Opioid use makes me think about ileus, which can cause diffuse discomfort. And chronic steroids make me think about adrenal insufficiency. All right, so let's circle back to the location of the abdominal pain. Let's talk about what we can learn about the location of the abdominal pain. So let's say the abdominal pain is located in the left upper quadrant. What would be on your differential? I would think particularly of splenic causes such as splenic infarct, rupture, or abscess. I would also think about gastritis. The tail of the pancreas ends in the hilum of the spleen, so I would also consider pancreatitis lower on my differential. The left kidney is located behind the pancreatic tail, so renal causes of pain such as pyelonephritis or renal abscess would be on my differential. Finally, extra abdominal causes, such as diaphragmatic inflammation, secondary to pulmonary or cardiac causes, might enter my differential, such as empyema or pleuritis. But, to reiterate, left upper quadrant pain 
is most commonly in reference to the spleen on your exams. How about epigastric pain? What would be on your differential? I would think mostly about either acute pancreatitis or peptic ulcer disease, especially duodenal ulcers. Esophageal or gastric inflammation may also present in the epigastric region. Abdominal aortic aneurysms and aneurysms that rupture could also be on your differential. Finally, I would think about extra abdominal causes such as myocardial infarction or pericarditis. What would be on your differential for right upper quadrant pain? Hepatobiliary problems in particular, especially cholecystitis, sit at the top of my differential for right upper quadrant pain. Other hepatobiliary complaints might include hepatitis, ascending cholangitis, cholecystitis, or Bud Chiari syndrome. The head of the pancreas is in close proximity to the gallbladder and bile ducts, so pancreatitis again could be on the differential. Finally, I would think of the right upper quadrant similar to the left upper quadrant and consider renal and possible pulmonary causes. Essentially, as we're talking, I mostly want you to think about abdominal causes, but you definitely don't want to rule out in your mind any of the extra abdominal causes. As you've heard for the top half of the abdomen, we need to consider cardiopulmonary causes and diaphragmatic inflammation. For the bottom half of the abdomen, we need to consider all potential pelvic causes of abdominal pain. So let's go through each of these lower regions. What is going to be on your differential for left lower quadrant abdominal pain? Left lower quadrant pain is almost always going to suggest diverticulitis. Diverticulitis nearly always affects the sigmoid colon due to its narrower lumen and therefore decreased tolerance to increased intraluminal pressures. Ulcerative colitis is also very high on my differential, especially if this is chronic pain associated with bloody diarrhea. Colorectal cancer or obstructive processes are lower on my differential. We need to consider nephrolithiasis, especially if the pain radiates to the groin or thigh. Finally, in female patients, we need to consider tubo-ovarian causes, such as ovarian cysts, ectopic pregnancy, or salpingitis. What is going to be on your differential for peri-umbilical pain or suprapubic pain? So because the small bowel is actually located mainly in the peri-umbilical region, I like to think of small bowel etiologies and the first one that comes to mind is gastroenteritis, mainly viral gastroenteritis. Uh, along those lines, I also like to think about small bowel obstruction, as well as mesenteric ischemia. Especially in teenage or young adult patients, I would consider early appendicitis. Abdominal aortic aneurysm is also on my differential. I might consider urinary problems associated with the bladder, such as cystitis or bladder distension. In males, I could consider testicular etiologies, especially torsion. And in females, I would be concerned about uterine etiologies, such as pelvic inflammatory disease. And what would be on your differential for right lower quadrant pain? The very top of my differential would likely be appendicitis. Again, particularly in the young. So as abscess is rare clinically, but a popular option on tests because it can be difficult to differentiate from appendicitis until you get imaging. Crohn's most commonly affects the terminal ileum, so I would consider that on my differential. In your pediatric population, I might think about intussusception or Meckel's diverticulitis, 
And getting more specific, if you have a neonate preemie, I might think about necrotizing enterocolitis. Again, I might think of tubo-ovarian causes in my female patients, and I might think about nephrolithiasis if the history matched. Finally, the pain might not localize to any one location, but it might be diffuse. What might be on your differential for diffuse abdominal pain? Gastroenteritis would be number one on my differential in the clinic, but it's not fun to test on the exam because you often can't do anything about it. Others might be mesenteric ischemia, irritable bowel syndrome, bowel obstruction, diabetic ketoacidosis, peritonitis, familial Mediterranean fever, malaria, hennec schonlein purpura. This could also be a psychiatric problem such as anxiety or somatic symptom disorder. Finally, for any case of diffuse abdominal pain that you have difficulty solving with a history and physical alone, I would definitely consider other metabolic causes such as hyperparathyroidism, uremia, hyperlipidemia, angioedema, porphyria, or adrenal crisis. Sometimes the pain radiates, as we discussed with nephrolithiasis. Pain also classically radiates in splenic, pancreatic, and biliary inflammation. These pains are often described as radiating to which locations? Splenic injury radiates to the left shoulder blade, pancreatitis radiates straight through to the back, and cholecystitis radiates to the right shoulder blade. Okay, so you've collected a thorough history, now we should perform a physical exam and, if not already collected, you should collect vitals. Let's start with vitals. We already talked about fever and its role. Tachycardia and tachypnea might lend credence to a cardiopulmonary disorder, or they might suggest sepsis, especially when coupled with fever, or they might simply suggest elevated catecholamine release secondary to pain. Hypertension could suggest vascular noncompliance, which might suggest chronic mesenteric ischemia. Let's talk about hypotension, though. What does hypotension suggest to you? Again, this might suggest sepsis, but it might also suggest hypovolemia due to vomiting and or diarrhea, or due to hemorrhage, which could suggest mesenteric infarct, bowel perforation, or hepatic or splenic lacerations, especially in a trauma patient. Alright, let's move to the physical exam. I would likely check for lymphadenopathy, look at the skin and eyes for jaundice or scleral icterus. I personally do a cardiopulmonary exam on pretty much every patient, and I check extremities for edema suggestive of hepatic or cardiopulmonary pathology. But I'm really chomping at the bit to do an abdominal exam. Note that a thorough abdominal exam is going to be accompanied by a rectal exam in nearly every patient and a pelvic exam in select female patients, usually whose main concern is lower abdominal pain. Let's talk about the abdominal exam in depth. What are the steps to a good abdominal exam? Look, listen, and palpate in that order. What are you looking for? You're looking for distension, which could suggest bowel distension or perhaps ascites. You might see contusions suggestive of damage to the body wall, especially in trauma patients or patients you suspect to be victims of abuse. Sometimes you might see bruising in the periumbilical region and along the flanks. Do you know what these signs are called and what they suggest? Periumbilical bruising is referred to as colon sign. 
and flank bruising is referred to as gray turner sign and these signs suggest retroperitoneal hemorrhage especially secondary to acute pancreatitis okay so then we listen what are we listening for bowel sounds now pathologic bowel sounds are described as hyperactive high-pitched hypoactive or absent these sounds are much more meaningful on a written exam than they are in real life let's discuss them hyperactive bowel sounds suggest an inflammatory disorder or make sense if the patient has vomiting and or diarrhea high-pitched or tinkling bowel sounds suggest an obstructive disorder hypoactive to absent bowel sounds might suggest ileus or constipation or they might suggest mesenteric ischemia especially if they follow hyperactive bowel sounds. Decreased or absent bowel sounds also suggest peritonitis. So then we palpate. What are we feeling for? We're feeling for tenderness and associated guarding and masses. Now, if you have a mass, this could be so many things. If I told you it was a child with a sausage-shaped mass, what would you think? Classically, that's intussusception. If I told you this was a 70-year-old smoker with a pulsatile mass, what might you think? That's abdominal aortic aneurysm. Masses might also suggest tumors. Tenderness is really helpful to accurately localize the pain. So we brought up guarding. What is guarding? Guarding is when the abdominal muscles are tightened in an effort to guard the already injured abdomen from further insult from, say, a physician's hands. Guarding can be described as voluntary or involuntary. How can you distinguish between the two? Voluntary guarding can be relaxed by asking the patient to relax and breathe through the pain. It is also diffuse since it is difficult for patients to contract abdominal muscles in only one particular area. Involuntary guarding, however, cannot be relaxed, and it can involve only a small portion of the abdomen. What is significant about involuntary guarding versus voluntary guarding in regards to your differential? Involuntary guarding suggests peritonitis. What if the patient is writhing in pain, but they have a soft abdomen without guarding? What is going on there? We call that pain out of proportion to physical exam, and that suggests mesenteric ischemia. Okay, what is rebound tenderness, and what does that suggest? By pressing down on the abdomen, you deform the peritoneum and quickly taking your hands away causes the abdomen and peritoneum to rebound back into their initial position like a rubber band. And if the rebound is considered painful by the patient, this is called rebound tenderness, and it suggests peritonitis. Anything that shakes or jars the patient may also elicit rebound tenderness, such as having the patient hop or kicking the bed that the patient is lying on, or perhaps the patient might recount feeling pain when striking bumps or potholes in the road while en route to the hospital. As a side note, some practitioners suggest that kicking the gurney, pressing into the abdomen and rapidly releasing, and asking the patient to hop are cruel and unnecessary ways to test for rebound tenderness, 
and that percussing the abdomen is less painful to the patient and more accurate at determining the location of the peritonitis. What is Murphy's sign? Murphy's sign is when a patient suddenly stops inspiring while a physician presses with their hand under the costal margin of the right upper quadrant, and it suggests cholecystitis. This is because the gallbladder is in close relationship to the liver, and the liver in close relationship to the diaphragm. So as you inspire, it lowers the diaphragm and lowers the liver, which lowers the gallbladder. As the gallbladder is lowered into the practitioner's hands, and the hands begin to touch the gallbladder, the patient will reflexively stop breathing because of the pain. What is Charcot's triad, and what does it suggest? Charcot's triad is right upper quadrant pain, fever, and jaundice, and it suggests ascending cholangitis, or an infection of the biliary tree. What is Reynolds' pentad, and what does it suggest? Reynolds' pentad is Charcot's triad, that is right upper quadrant pain, fever, and jaundice, plus two more symptoms, shock and altered mental status. And it also suggests ascending cholangitis, but a more severe case. What is McBurney's point? McBurney's point is located along an imaginary line between the umbilicus and the anterior superior iliac spine and is approximately two inches from the iliac spine, or two-thirds of the way along that line from the umbilicus. Tenderness at this point suggests appendicitis, and is also called McBurney's sign. What is Ravsing's sign? Ravsing's sign is when pain in the right lower quadrant is elicited by palpating the left lower quadrant, and this suggests appendicitis. What is the psoas sign? Essentially, it is pain in the right lower quadrant that is elicited by passive hip extension. It suggests appendicitis. What is the obturator sign? It is pain in the right lower quadrant that is elicited by passive hip flexion and internal rotation and it also suggests appendicitis. In real life, these exam maneuvers may be more or less helpful because they are subject to error by the person that executes them. What are we looking for in particular on pelvic exam? Cervical motion tenderness, which might suggest pelvic inflammatory disease, or ovarian or other masses. What are we looking for on rectal exam? visible blood or occult blood via stool guaiac. Also, if there are any masses suggestive of rectal cancer or if there's impacted stool causing an obstruction. All right, I think that is a great initial approach to abdominal pain. Let's discuss briefly and broadly the diagnostic tests that we can order for abdominal pain. We really can't go into too much detail here. That would be best in future episodes when we discuss workups for individual diseases causing abdominal pain. But there are some common elements. So let's start with labs. Let's assume this patient shows symptoms that make you suspect that this is not a simple case of viral gastroenteritis or anxiety. What labs are you going to want to get on most patients with abdominal pain? 
I would almost certainly get a CBC or complete blood count, and it will likely come with a differential. I'll probably get a complete metabolic panel or CMP. I'll also probably get a lipase and an amylase. If this is a woman of childbearing age, I'll likely get a beta-HCG. Many patients requiring a workup for abdominal pain, especially diffuse abdominal pain, will get these labs. Let's talk about them. What is the difference between a CBC without differential and a CBC with differential? The differential essentially breaks down the white blood cells into their various subtypes. What are the different types of white blood cells and what are their relative proportions? So I remember the white blood cells with the mnemonic never let monkeys eat bananas for neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. This conveniently arranges the white blood cells by their relative proportions, and as a very rough estimate, I say that white blood cells should be 60% neutrophils, 30% lymphocytes, 6% monocytes, 3% eosinophils, and 1% basophils. So 60-30-6-3-1. Neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. This doesn't really hold true for pediatric populations, but you should get reference ranges for them. Alright, so excluding the differential, what information do we get from a CBC, and how will that help us with our patient with abdominal pain? So a CBC gives us white blood cells, which can suggest infection if high or low, and can strengthen the diagnosis of sepsis. When low, white blood cells could also suggest immunosuppression. The H&H, or hemoglobin and hematocrit, help us to know if the patient is hemorrhagic, if low, or if they have non-hemorrhagic hypovolemia if it is high, such as due to vomiting or diarrhea. Finally, platelets will typically be elevated in an inflammatory state, and when decreased may suggest immune thrombocytic purpura, but certainly it may indicate that this patient may not be ready for surgery. Okay, let's go back to the differential. What additional information can we glean from the differential? A majority of the time we are looking to see if there is a lymphocytic shift or a neutrophilic shift, the former supporting a viral illness and the latter supporting a bacterial one. Elevated eosinophils might suggest an atopic disorder or a parasitic infection. Okay, so what labs are included in a CMP? So you get your basic metabolic panel, or BMP, which includes your electrolytes, sodium, potassium, chloride. You can get a rough acid-base status with bicarb. You get renal function with BUN, or blood urea nitrogen, and creatinine. And you get glucose levels. In addition to the BMP, the CMP contains serum calcium levels, liver aminotransferases such as ALT and AST, total proteins and albumin, alkaline phosphatase, and total bilirubin levels. Electrolytic disorders themselves can cause diffuse abdominal pain, and they can also indicate fluid status and anion gap status. Bicarb will be decreased in severe diarrhea, increased in severe vomiting, and both metabolic acidosis and alkalosis could cause diffuse abdominal pain and needs to be corrected. Elevated BUN to creatinine ratio may suggest dehydration secondary to vomiting or diarrhea, 
and an elevated creatinine may suggest renal failure, which will affect your decision to use IV contrast when performing imaging studies or in your selection of medications. Glucose, when low, indicates hypoglycemia, which might make you think of an insulinoma and would be a possible cause of abdominal pain, and when highly elevated may suggest DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a more likely cause of abdominal pain. Abnormally elevated liver function tests, ALT and AST, may suggest hepatic inflammation. Elevated alkaline phosphatase can suggest increased bone turnover, but it can also indicate bile duct inflammation. Elevated total bilirubin, especially in an adult, suggests biliary obstruction. It may also indicate hemolytic disease, and sickle cell disease can cause abdominal pain with hemolysis. Calcium might be decreased in acute pancreatitis due to a saponification reaction following the release of fatty acids from the loose lipase, and it may be elevated in hyperparathyroidism, which itself is known to cause abdominal pain. Finally, albumin and total protein also give us a look into liver function, feeding status, and albumin levels can help explain discrepancies in other lab values, which we'll talk more about in future episodes. My point is, a CBC and CMP give you so much information and are especially crucial for abdominal pain that does not localize well. Make sure you know how to read them and spend some time roughly memorizing the normal ranges in each lab value. Why would I order a lipase and amylase? These are pancreatic enzymes and when elevated suggest pancreatic inflammation. If you had to get one and you suspected acute pancreatitis, which would you get? I would get a lipase. Many studies show that it has a higher sensitivity, specificity, and it rises earlier and has a longer half-life, so it stays elevated in the blood for longer. Some studies even suggest that adding amylase does little to increase the diagnostic value to lipase alone. Finally, why did I order a beta-HCG for my female patient? Ectopic pregnancy, and even normal pregnancy, can cause abdominal pain. It can also distort the anatomy of the abdomen significantly, making pains typically seen in the lower abdomen appear in the upper abdomen. That actually brings me to an important point. The anatomical approach to abdominal pain has some important flaws. The first being that the anatomy can be distorted by pregnancy or prior surgeries, and the second being that congenital anatomical variants exist, particularly with the appendix. I might also order a urinalysis, especially if the patient is having dysuria, but we'll have to talk more in-depth about UAs later. Anyway, those are some great labs and will be your bread and butter for abdominal pain. Let's jump into the diagnostic imaging and procedures. What do we have in our arsenal? So very broadly speaking, we can do ultrasound, x-ray, CT, MRI, nuclear medicine, endoscopy, biopsy, and exploratory surgery. Very generally speaking, this is also the rough order of escalation for these tests because of cost, time requirements, and invasiveness associated with each. But this is not the rule, and even if it were, there are several very important exceptions, and you need to use clinical judgment for deciding upon any one of these studies. So let's talk about ultrasound. What would ultrasound be good for? 
So ultrasound is actually going to be a very popular choice for the abdomen. It is very useful for hepatobiliary disorders, appendicitis, really anything where you know what you're looking for. It's also great at finding abnormal fluid collections inside of the abdomen. All right, let's talk about x-ray. What would you use x-ray for? X-ray is hit or miss in the abdomen. When coupled with barium swallows or enemas, its diagnostic quality is improved, but it's not always possible or advised to do this in every situation. X-ray is really mostly going to be good at looking at skeletal structures, uh, as well as air in the abdomen, both free air in the peritoneum and air within the gastrointestinal tract. X-ray is going to be somewhat contraindicated in pregnancy. All right, so tell me when you think that CT would be a good choice. CT is going to be another one of those really common imaging studies that you'll order for the abdomen, especially when it's coupled with IV contrast. It's great for detecting bleeding. It's an excellent study into structural abnormalities. It really shines when it comes to detecting inflammation in the abdomen. And I've read that it's a great study for when you don't know what you're really looking for, as opposed to ultrasound. CT is also going to be somewhat contraindicated, especially in pregnancy, though you'll also want to be careful when using CT in your pediatric patients. All right, so let's move on to MRI. When would you choose to do an MRI? MRI is often going to be the test of choice when a CT is contraindicated and an ultrasound is equivocal. MRI is more popular over CT for some musculoskeletal or central nervous system pathologies. MRI does have some contraindications, however, related to the strong electromagnetic force that it exerts, and it can cause some metals in the body to heat up, as well as disrupt signals from devices such as pacemakers. All right, let's talk about nuclear medicine. When would you use nuclear medicine? So nuclear medicine has very specific uses, such as a HIDA scan for cholecystitis following an equivocal ultrasound, a technetium 99M scan for Meckel's diverticulum, a tagged red blood cell scan for blood loss, and a positron emission tomography or PET scan for metastatic cancer. Nuclear medicine is somewhat contraindicated in your pregnant population. Okay, let's move on to endoscopy. When are you going to use endoscopy? So esophagogastroduodenoscopy and colonoscopy are useful for locating masses, ulcers, inflammatory bowel disease, Mallory Weiss tears, gastritis, GERD, really anything that could be seen with the naked eye in the GI tract. ERCP is an endoscopic technique that is both diagnostic and therapeutic, especially for cholelithiasis and its complications. You will not use colonoscopy for diagnosing acute diverticulitis because there is an increased risk of perforation associated. In fact, abdominal pain following a recent colonoscopy is going to raise iatrogenic perforation on my differential. Okay, so let's move on to biopsy. When are you going to get a biopsy? So biopsy is really helpful for identifying masses as cancerous or non-cancerous, as well as for staging cancers. In the non-operative setting, biopsies are more likely to be done on masses located in the periphery of an organ or in locations where samples can be collected endoscopically. 
Biopsies do carry with them the risk of damage to nearby organs or structures. Finally, let's talk about surgery, especially exploratory surgery. When would you want to do that? So I would say that exploratory surgery is indicated particularly in life-threatening hemorrhage or infarcted bowel requiring resection. Bowel obstruction due to suspected adhesions may require surgical lysis. And pelvic pain, especially in your female patients, may benefit from exploratory surgery because it is both diagnostic and curative for many diseases, such as endometriosis or salpingitis, etc. Remember again, however, that surgery itself comes with many potential complications and itself can cause abdominal pain due to a failed anastomosis following a bowel resection, due to wound dehiscence, or simply due to expected pain following surgery while the wounds heal. Alright, this was a lot, but let's recap. What are some questions that we can ask our patients to get a good HPI for a chief complaint of abdominal pain? We can ask about temporal nature, location, quality, severity, aggravating and alleviating factors, and associated symptoms with the pain. The temporal nature of the disease tells us if this is a chronic or acute abdominal pain, and these are two completely different beasts. What is your differential for chronic abdominal pain? In a child, functional abdominal pain tops my list, followed by chronic constipation, and then somewhere down my list are GERD, peptic ulcer disease, dyspepsia, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, and metabolic disorders. In an adult, particularly in the elderly, I would give more thought towards cancer, but it rarely tops my differential. GERD and peptic ulcer disease would be high on my differential. Nephrolithiasis and cholelithiasis, lactose intolerance, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, hepatitis, chronic mesenteric ischemia, celiac disease, and various metabolic disorders would also all fall on my differential. What is your differential for acute left upper quadrant pain? Splenic pathologies are number one. Renal, gastric, pancreatic, and pulmonary pathologies are also there, especially inflammatory disorders. What is your differential for acute epigastric pain? Pancreatitis and peptic ulcer disease are at the top of my list. Gastric, esophageal, cardiac problems, and abdominal aortic aneurysm are also on my list. What is on your differential for acute right upper quadrant pain? Hepatobiliary pathologies are number one, followed by pancreatic, renal, and pulmonary pathologies. What is on your differential for acute right lower quadrant pain? Appendicitis is number one, followed by tubo-ovarian and pregnancy-related pathologies in women, intussusception or Meckel's diverticulitis in peds patients, as well as Crohn's disease and nephrolithiasis. What is on your differential for acute periumbilical or suprapubic pain? For me, gastroenteritis would be number one, followed by small bowel obstruction, bladder pathologies, early appendicitis, abdominal aortic aneurysm, pregnancy-related or uterine pathologies in women, and testicular torsion in men. 
what is on your differential for acute diffuse abdominal pain? Again, for me, gastroenteritis has got to be number one, followed by mesenteric ischemia, bowel obstruction, irritable bowel syndrome, peritonitis, diabetic ketoacidosis, familial Mediterranean fever, malaria, and finally, psychiatric and metabolic disorders. I just wanted to say that none of those are in any particular order besides the top differentials that I listed. So where do the pains of splenic, pancreatic, and biliary pathology typically radiate? The left shoulder blade straight through the abdomen to the back and the right shoulder blade respectively. Those are the most important details. I'll let you review the importance of the other questions in the HPI and the history on your own. After you collect a history, obviously you're going to perform a physical. How do you perform an abdominal exam? Look for swelling, distension, discolorations, listen for bowel sounds, and palpate for tenderness, masses, organomegaly, guarding, and rebound tenderness. Let's talk about some of the important abdominal signs on physical exam. So what are Charcot's triad and Reynolds' pentad indicative for? That's ascending cholangitis. What does Murphy's sign suggest? Acute cholecystitis. What do Soas sign, McBurney sign, and obturator sign all suggest? Acute appendicitis. Okay, so what labs are you most likely going to order in an abdominal pain workup? You'll want to order a CBC with differential, likely a CMP. You'll probably get a lipase and amylase. Maybe a urinalysis if there is dysuria or suprapubic pain or fullness. And certainly a beta-HCG if this is a female patient that is of childbearing age. For imaging and diagnostic procedures, what are your basic options? You can get ultrasound, x-ray, CT, MRI, nuclear medicine, endoscopy, you can get a biopsy, and you can do surgical exploration. Great. So what are some of the important contraindications to each of these diagnostic tests? So we would avoid x-ray, CT, and nuclear medicine in our pregnant patients. Nephrotoxic contrasts used often in CT would have contraindications in our patients with renal failure. MRI has contraindications for patients that have metal that could be heated up by the magnets or patients that have implanted devices such as pacemakers. Surgery would have contraindications in patients with low platelets or bleeding disorders or who have poor cardiopulmonary function. Biopsy is mainly going to be contraindicated when there is significant risk to damaging nearby structures. And colonoscopy would have contraindications in patients suspected of having acute diverticulitis. Alright, that was a lot. I'm going to wrap up the episode now and make an episode specifically for walking through individual cases of abdominal pain. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the MedEd podcast. If you liked what you've heard, please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. If you found any information to be inaccurate, or you have ideas for future episodes, or you would like to contribute to future podcasts, please email us at mededpodcast at gmail.com. That's mededpodcast, M-E-D-E-D, podcast at gmail.com. The song you heard at the beginning is called May the Chords Be With You by Computer Music All-Stars. The transitions came from a song called Where Was I by Lee Rosevere. The song you're hearing now is called Night Owl by Broke for Free. The MedEd podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and it is not intended to replace proper medical consultation from a trained and licensed professional. The improper diagnosis and treatment of disease can lead to injury and death. Contact a qualified healthcare provider about your health concerns. While we will strive to bring the most correct and up-to-date material, the information presented may not always be accurate and is ultimately your responsibility to verify. The MedEd podcast has no affiliation with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, or USMLE, or any other affiliations for that matter, and the information presented here is not guaranteed to be representative of information presented on any examination or within the context of medical practice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the creators of said podcast. They do not purport to reflect the opinions of the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine or the opinions of any other institution with which the creators may be associated.